Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. A healthy lifestyle depends on quality sleep, and Sleep Number is here to help you sleep more efficiently. Sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health. Here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible. Reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late-night alcohol. Get regular exercise during the day, which helps you feel tired in the evening. And keep track of your sleep health with data from your Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate Sleep Number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast one for details. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL. Some of you have seen me on Instagram. And some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, turning topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Continuing the Division Capsule podcast series, the Real GM Radio off-season tradition, we have the Central Division with Dan Feldman of NBC Pro Basketball Talk and Seth Partnow of The Athletic. And really fun conversation. We have some real differences of opinion and working through a really active off-season for these five teams, including the recently completed Lowry Markkinen, Larry Nance, you know, that whole deal, which involved two of the five teams in this division. So we get into both the off-season, pre- off-season review and the regular season preview, kind of where things are going, everything like that, and thought it was a really fun conversation. Runs pretty close to an hour and a half, so I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Uh, uh, Danny, Dan, it's a pleasure. I like that Seth has enough experience with multi-person podcasts to to know to to wait because you do you do so many more three plus person podcasts than I do. That you're just like, okay, I'm going to wait for my turn. Well, it's it's on on Nerder. It's always it's a it's a guessing game as to whether uh, uh, Dufour is going to throw it to me or Mo first. So it's yeah. uh, just just wait. You know, you got you got to spot up. You got to be shot ready. But you know, you you can't you can't cut when it's not when it's not part of the play and break the play. So you know, I'm a, I'm a good teammate. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Central Division, a lot of actually interesting ground to cover here with these five teams. And we'll start with Dan. I like to begin this with kind of a basic question before we get into some of the nitty gritty, which is who in this division do you think got better and who do you think got worse? I think uh, most of this division got better, but probably not enough uh, to really move the needle. I think the Bulls got better. I think the Pacers got better. I think the Cavaliers got better. I think the Pistons got better, and I think the Bucks got worse. Uh, obviously, I, I, spoiler alert, I know we'll get into this later, I still think Milwaukee is the best team by a wide margin in this division. Yeah, I think I would agree with with every bit of that sentiment. And the one thing I'd also add is obviously we're grading on a curve based on where – 
the teams are, but I think that only one team in the division got better enough relative to what they what their outlay was, what their where they are as a team. Um, you know, the the Bulls got better, but I'm sure we'll get into this in great detail. But <laughs> they, didn't get, they didn't get they didn't get enough better for kind of what they invested to get there. So I think the I think if there is a a quote unquote winner of this uh, of the off season in this division, it's Detroit. Oh, I was really curious to see who you think got better enough for for where, where they started. Well, so what's interesting uh, I, is I so Detroit. I think Detroit their future got brighter. I don't know how much better they're going to be in the immediate. I mean, it's see, and I, I think that's a good thing. Like I, I fully support Trey Weaver going in this direction, but I mean, swapping Plumlee for Olenek, I mean, that, that shifts a couple of things. I mean, I think they're probably just going to play Isaiah Stewart more, which can work out, but it seems like the youth movement is on in full. And I think there could be some diminishing returns. When we were at Summer League, I called it the too many cooks problem because they were playing Cade Cunningham, Killian Hayes, and sometimes Saban Lee together, which is too much ball handling, too much passing and not enough shooting, in my opinion, especially if Killian Hayes is not where he needs to be. Um, so I, I could see the Pistons, like, I think they're better organizationally. I think they're going in the right direction, but I'm not sure they're going to be better next year than they were last year. It's not a high bar to clear. That's true. But that's also fair though. I mean, but they were also, there was a fair amount of, of so what to the level they reached last year. Like, okay, we can get to this decent level. And by the way, they, they kind of underperformed in terms of win loss. They underperformed their, their fundamentals a decent amount because they were a pretty poor clutch team uh, last year. But, um, you know, where does, where does, let's feed all the minutes and usage to, and, and, and touches to Jeremy Grant. Where does that get you? I mean, it, it's, it's nice that Jeremy Grant can, can hold up under that with reasonable efficiency, but where does that really get you? And so even if they're, as you say, even if they're, they're not any better in terms of results this year, just the fact that they aren't, you know, going all in on, on, uh, on, you know, pretty mediocre hands, um, you know, they, they, they still have outs to draw to, whether it's this year or in the future. Whereas the structure they had previously was sort of, I don't know what it was. I don't know where it was going. I mean, they, they were young last year, too, so a lot of uh, my feeling of they'll be better next year is based on, hey, it's a mostly young roster, everybody's a year older, uh, is going to be more comfortable. And, and then I, I do think it's an upgrade from Mason Plumlee to Kelly Olynyk. Nothing earth-shattering, uh, but if the scale is better or not, both those tip me toward better. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, think I, I think the roster right. fits together better, at least on the front court. Like Olenek, I don't think that Olenek is the like front court piece that transforms them into a really good team, but at least it gives them more spacing. He makes sense in some of their some of their lineups, and and also Olenek's ability to play both the four and the five. You know, they can put him next to Jeremy. Can put him next to Isaiah Stewart, and Olenek doesn't have. He's not making a crazy amount of money. Doesn't have the like the kind of the situation that Plumlee did, where it's like he felt kind of felt like he had to start. And so I think he's going to fit into those roles. I also like Olenek um, just from a stylistic standpoint. I think he is a a very good foil for for Cade. Um, yes, and that's you know in, in in his development. I mean, Cade Cade wants to play at a certain at a certain pace, a certain rhythm. And Kelly Olynyk is is you know okay the, the like the best player to play at that rhythm with, with them would be Nikola Jokic, that's not on the table. So what's a what's sort of the 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 dollar store version of of that pivot play? And I mean you you could do you could certainly do worse as an offensive facsimile of that that sort of kind of game than than Kelly Olynyk. And I think that 
will allow Cade to show kind of his the array of his talents both on and off ball um, better than sort of maybe a, a you know a a more sprinty dive and dunk lower skilled big man might. Well, I think we the the other really interesting question for me, kind of along that in this framing, is with the Pacers because the Pacers. I usually try to like say that at the beginning, and I didn't this time. That it's based on full strength talent because I think it's hard to argue that the Pacers will be worse than they were last year, just because they had so many absences, including T.J. Warren basically missing the entire year, and Miles Turner missed a bunch of time, and everything. I mean, basically everybody did. But from a personnel standpoint, they lost McDermott, they lost Aaron Holiday. And they replaced them with probably Duarte, Isaiah Jackson, and then giving some more minutes to some of the guys on the lower edges of the rotation, which is totally fine. And they, but in terms of like, did they get better? The other thing, and I would consider this a better or worse consideration, is that they also added Rick Carlisle. And while some of the tactical stuff from Nate Bjorken was actually really interesting, some of the off-court things, basically what led to him getting fired one season in, like, I, I could see there being benefits there too. I mean, Carlisle, in my opinion, was the best established coach that was available. He might not be, you know, we'll see how some of the, you know, Jamal Mosley and some of these other not yet established coaches, I, I wouldn't be stunned if one of them turned out to be better, especially with Carlisle at this point in his career. But like, I think on talent, the Pacers downgraded, but if you add in the coach, I think they upgraded. And for the, like you said, for the Pacers, um, just having a, a shortage of talent hasn't really been the Pacers issue in recent years. It's been the combination of whether that talent is available and especially in the front court, whether it's fit, it fits together. Um, and, and they, I think actually they have, I mean, they have questions about fit kind of both in front and back court now. Um, just, just in terms of, of, of Levert, Levert and Brogdon. Um, I, I think that should work fine. That should, that should work far more seamlessly than the Sabonis Turner pair, which is, which is a, you know, I don't think we need to go into why that's a tough pairing in, in sort of the modern NBA style. I think that pairing is better than people get it cre- give it credit for, in, especially in the regular season. Uh, I think, it, you know, this is not a hard and fast rule, but I think size tends to help defensively. And I think those two guys wall off the paint and are comfortable playing together. And, uh, yeah, in a lot of matchups, you're going to be giving up speed and versatility, and that's going to matter more. But a lot of nights in the regular season, just walling off the paint, which those two can do just by being big, uh, it goes a long way, so I think that pairing's fine. Uh, and I'm with you, Danny. They they picked up Tory Craig too. Just want to oh, thank you, thank hand you. Hands in addition, but I still thought the roster was slightly downgraded. Uh, losing uh, McDermott, picking up Craig, but I, I just think the coaching addition uh, is is more important uh, than those uh, back end rotation players. Uh, and it's not just the off court stuff, although that is a lot of it. Uh, it's also the the imaginative things Bjorkman did didn't really work for this roster. Maybe there's something to trying this, and you raise your ceiling. But if if you're just talking about uh, being better next year, uh, some somebody more conventional like Carlisle, uh, I think is going to be good for this team. Well, and it doesn't it doesn't matter how inventive the if if you can't sell it. And yeah. So that's where that's you know the the you know the chalkboard uh, like genius of it. If you can't convince the players to do it, whether because you're a bad communicator or, or simply because everyone hates you, um, what good is it? So, um, you know, Carlisle is not a um, warm and fuzzy personality, but he it does seem that he has the ability to get guys to execute on the, the plan he wants them to execute. And I, I also don't think it's I don't think it's entirely fair to describe him as a conventional coach. I think he is. Well, I think relative it, it, to Bjorkren. 
I don't know. I think in his Dallas tenure, I think he's shown himself to be among the more willing to just try stuff. I mean, the the, the Clippers series in 21, I think that is a real strong kind of arrow in Seth's quiver here. I mean, they not only going to Boban, but going to like that zone stuff. Like they tried a lot. And some of it actually like really flummoxed Ty Lue and the Clippers in that series. Oh, so I, I guess I just want to be a, a little more clear. When I say convent, part of this is because he has some conventional things in his bag in addition well, and, to the other stuff. Dan, were you saying also because his team's never run? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's becoming less conventional, uh, but maybe that's some of it. But he, you know, he, he has all of it in his bag where, where I think Bjorkren, uh, his selling point is, you know, he can do unconventional things. Well, so I, I think that's an interesting, like, kind of, there's the Pacers are a good lens, though. I'm, one of the next thing I usually do in these is go into, like, a move, a pick trade signing that stood out, and we'll, we have plenty to work through in this division. But where I actually want to start, because Seth kind of got into this a little bit, is a couple of the moves that didn't happen. And so the Pacers had a logjam in the front court where, the, you know, you wondered about the fit of Turner and Sabon. And then if you want to throw in Patatze, who's having this own weird, uh, he missed summer league, he was absent for personal reasons. They also drafted another big in Isaiah Jackson, who I thought looked good, and potentially a challenge in the backcourt. And I talked a little bit with Caitlin Cooper about this when I had her on towards the end of the season. And the idea, I think, is that they were maybe hoping, Kevin Pritchard, that this was an eval- that 20 slash 21 was an evaluation season, but because of all the injuries and because of Bjorkren, they couldn't really do that. So maybe they just feel, okay, let's give Carlisle the full, the full concept and we'll see if it works. And if not, then we'll start to make moves. But even though the Pacers guys are signed for a while, like all of their key players other than Warren are under contract for multiple years, it, it might end up being like, if this isn't right, the longer they wait, the harder it's going to be to make it work. Perhaps. Um, I think to get back to something Dan said earlier, um, um, the, the, the two bigs work together. And I think that's true. They work together because they're both good. Yes. I mean, that's the, the, yes. so, so you, you kind of smooth down some of the fit problems there. So, you know, in, it's not a situation where, you know, it's not a, necessarily a, a, I don't know how to pick a name, a Ben Simmons situation where the oddness of a fit, like, uh, between the, between two players causes, you know, apparently a, a sharp decline in the, you know, the, the, the trade value of one of the players. I think, you know, I think that, that a, everyone, the, the, or at least enough teams are cognizant of what Sabonis and Turner can each do individually in a system that is, that is more catered, more, uh, more spaced, more balanced to their set of skills than they possibly can now. And, and the fact that the results aren't always perfect when they're playing together, I don't think, I don't think is, is quite the same impediment to Indiana making a move, um, or, or getting, or, or realizing value in a move as it might be in, in other cases. Again, because they're good and they're both recognized as being good. Why do you think that's true for these two, but not for Ben Simmons to steal a little bit of shine from the Atlantic division uh, preview pod? I mean, I think part of it is, is just like the, their limitate, each of those players' limitations are kind of normal. You know, mm-hmm. they're, 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 okay, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're used to building around, you know, we've seen teams build around, you know, uh, you know, an undersized big who can, who can pass but doesn't protect the rim super well. We're, uh, or, uh, you know, a, a, a stretchier big who, who maybe doesn't, doesn't, you know, uh, finish around the basket as well as we like, but protects the rim pretty well. I think we've we've seen the ability to build around those archetypes, whereas Simmons is sort of uh, sui generis. So 
you know, that well, he can't shoot, so um, is 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 a harder. Well, uh, I, I, I think there's another piece to it, which is the idea of the gaps that are filled and the gaps that are not. So when you're pairing Turner and Sabonis, yeah, Sabonis doesn't necessarily have a place to be, but you're checking some of the important defensive boxes. You have a capable rim protector. Theoretically, maybe they'd be better rebounding than they have been at times. And then offensively, you're not gumming up the spacing. You're not playing with two traditional bigs. They can't really shoot. And Sabonis, he's not like a deep shooter, but he also can pass the ball. So he creates kind of space within the defense in a little bit of a different way. Whereas with Simmons, what what I think is kind of the biggest organizational challenge with him is that he he's not dynamic enough as a half-court creator. So if you want to be better at that, if you need that, then you need somebody else. And then you get into all of these like logistical problems because it's like, yeah, well, if Simmons doesn't have the ball, then who does it? And you don't have to worry about that necessarily with Turner's bonus because it's like, well, what if Turner doesn't have the ball? That's fine. You know, it's, it's a different kind of structural challenge. No, I think I actually I think that's a a, uh, a good way of putting it in that um, Simmons and Embiid get each in each other's way, whereas at least Turner and Sabonis, the pairing doesn't doesn't negate either one of them. It's just you don't get as much of certain things yeah, as, you might, as you might like. The analogy, maybe I, that's, the analogy I would use is that Simmons and Embiid are more like Westbrook and Durant than like Westbrook and than like Curry and Durant. And I'm not saying Sabonis and Turner are <laughs> Curry and Durant, obviously. Right, right, but right. the idea is that they're they're not only their flaws, but also I would say to some extent their strengths are more complementary. Uh, we can jump to the other the other one that I would kind of an interesting non-move for me was somebody we've already brought up and that's Jeremy Grant. And so the Pistons are decidedly in a rebuilding mold, but not a full like tear everything down and be garbage. But Jeremy Grant, you know, I would say a, a to some extent a triumph of the Weaver era where he, he identified this player, got him to come for allegedly the same money that the Nuggets offered, gave him a big role. And while the beginning was better than the whole because, you know, like it was a point where it's like, oh my God, he's doing this and he's like 58% true shooting and like they're doing pretty well. But Grant also, you know, like he doesn't really make sense with the timeline. It's going to take time for Cade and Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bay and Killian Hayes and presumably the other picks that they're going to make over the next two years to be there. But at the same point, I don't think they had to make a move. And also, I think it's sometimes overstated how, oh, you have to be all or nothing. You have to do the like, I don't know why this is the one I think of, but like the Kiki Vandaway style, like when they traded Carmelo, just like tear the whole damn thing down. I don't think it has to be one way or the other, but... It's also true that if part of this is trying to get the most value you can, it's possible that Olympic gold medalist Jeremy Grant is the most valuable Jeremy Grant will ever be to the Pistons from an asset perspective. Well, there's a little bit of a difference here also in that um, a lot of the investment in Grant on the Pistons side is sort of non-fungible in that the, the sort of the, the links they went to be able to sign him, uh, even if they were to trade him, that like Dwayne Dedman is not coming off the books. So it, even if he didn't match the timeline, there, there are literally sunk costs there and Grant himself, his deal is not, not it, it's not, I don't think it's really an impediment. Um, and, and I think, Another, uh, in contrast to the player where, to, again, to skip around divisions a little bit, the player to whom that not on the timeline uh, argument has made, been made about more of the summers, Shea Gilders Alexander. I don't think Jeremy Grant wins you as nearly as many games as as Gilders Alexander does. Uh, so if you are you know um, unconcerned with with climbing the standing, shall we say, in uh, in anticipation of another good draft 
pick. I don't think he blocks you in in the way that a player of slightly higher caliber would. So, you know, what the he is a good player who can give them some good, competent offensive basketball, which helps. It, it means that, that Cade does not have to come in and, you know, carry a 30% usage and have the ball 50% of the time and try to play like Luca right away. Um, I think that's probably all for the best for everybody. Well, there's also the interpersonal aspect. Like, the, I suppose it was possible the Pistons could have traded Jeremy Grant, but he chose Detroit. He wanted to uh, play for Troy Weaver. He wanted to play for Dwayne Casey. Uh, he wanted this experience uh, of being more of a go-to player. That's what the Pistons sold him on. Uh, you know, I think they're thinking more long-term, uh, even though it might not seem that way keeping him, uh, than just, you know, what asset could we get? It's not just the asset play. It's it's uh, relationships and, and treating people the right way and, and creating that image, uh, selling that. And I think that's going to be more valuable uh, in the long-term. Plus, you have Trent McGrant, who's a good player, still under contract. Uh, there are still things you can figure out, right? If the Pistons are struggling again this season and there's a good trade to a place Jeremy Grant would want to go and you want to work with him on it, that could still make sense. You could probably still get a real nice asset. Are the odds uh, the asset value is as high later? Uh, no, it's probably going to be lower, uh, but that's okay. I, I think that was the probably the only way and the right way uh, that the Pistons ever were going to reasonably go about it. I also think Jeremy Grant has room to improve further. Uh, it's a little different because he's a second round pick. He'd been in the league uh, you know, so, so he's had a little bit of a different traje- trajectory, but we see all the time somebody who really comes into their own as a scorer first, uh, especially if it's somebody who you thought would be a good defensive player who has defensive tools. With Jeremy Grant, we know it. We know he can be a good defensive player. We've seen it on the NBA level. He couldn't do both last season. It was too much for him. He could not handle, handle the offensive load that he did and defend well, but maybe next year he can. Uh, maybe he needed this intro to doing so much offensively and he's going to bring back his defense and that's a heck of a player if he can put it all together. Maybe he won't, uh, but I definitely see that possibility there. I, the, the, the slight push back I would have is it's not just the defense. I think for the the primary offensive cog player type, the bigger um, advancement he'd have to make would be as a playmaker. And I agree. Well, as, I, I, and I agree. as and, and and that's something that that he has. You know, he's this is going to be his age twenty seven season. It's not something he's really shown on any level. And I think I think he can make incremental improvements there. But I don't think you know. I, I, is he ever going to be like a you know to to, to pick a, a, a sort of a cheap heuristic? Is he ever going to be a, a five assists a game guy uh, as as kind of a, a ball handling like like forward? I, I think that's that's a pretty big jump to expect at this point in his career um but but again as you say like it being the being the like the 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 level of score he was last year and a good defensive player like that's Mm -hmm. that's sort of the idealized version of pascal siakam and that's a pretty good player so yeah no i think that you're you're perfectly happy to have that player on you know on the, the the you know on the contract that, that Grant has, and, and probably even a larger one. So I, I think I, I don't I don't think we we really disagree in kind here. Yes. 
I agree on that. Yeah, and Grant, you know, uh, early in the year he was hotter shooting, but he ended it at 35%, taking 8.8 per 100 possessions. Like, that's the highest volume of his career. Not the same efficiency as he had throughout, but, I mean, if he's that kind of shooter or a little bit better, that can make it. And you would, I would make the argument that if he's playing more, you know, you lower the usage down, playing more with Cade Cunningham, then you can be getting a little bit superior opportunities. Maybe that ticks up a little bit just in the way that they often do when you get easier shots than you generally make a higher percentage of them at least over over time but we should probably get some of the moves that actually did happen and i'm guessing the place that the for me the place that we should start there is with the chicago bulls and the i mean we could talk i think we kind of talk about all of them together and separately and so that's adding lonzo ball via sign and trade adding and they gave up sadaransky and garrett temple in this five, a second sign and trade in that deal signing caruso with the mid-level and then because sequencing of this was so fun bringing in demar Derozan in that big sign and trade where they paid him a bunch of money and gave up a first round pick for the privilege and we, can we, uh, I mean, not so much for next season, but they also uh, did that Lowry and sign yes. trade uh, to get a, a first-rounder and a second-rounder and Derek Jones. I like most of those moves. Obviously, did not like the DeRozan one, uh, but it's, every other one I like. I, I guess it's weird. We're going to be on a podcast here. Uh, no Kevin Pelton around in our discussion, and uh, I get to be the uh, big Lonzo Ball fan in the conversation. I How dare you? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> do, I, do you outpace? I thought I was ahead of you. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm a pretty I I mean I, I thought that was a, a a pretty poor move by the, the by the Pelicans to trade him. I thought that okay, was okay. Here, really here's how we settle this: Lonzo Ball. What would you pay him over four years? So our annual annual salary <laughs> on a four year contract. Oh, see all my all my uh, mock off season. Uh, just like itching to go for a lower number rather than what like. I truly <laughs> would. Like, do you guys see him as a $20 million player? Like, I think his contract's yeah. fine. I don't think yeah. of him as, like, a 25. Uh, I might rather have him for, I mean, it depends on the team concept, uh, context, but I might rather have him for 25 than not have him for a lot of teams. Interesting. Okay, 25 so. Is, 25 is a big number, but part of it is, is you know, still calibrating to the changing kind of uh, league economics is, is yes. I, like, what, is that, what does that mean? And and what and what will that mean three four years from now? Right. I mean that's because I don't know exactly when if there's going to be a not a spike but the next bump like the next real change in revenue. But the expectation when you consider like the general arc of the league is that you know a twenty million dollar contract now is going to look more like a fifteen or a twelve million dollar contract a few years ago. I I actually built a converter years ago to kind of calibrate some of that stuff off of twenty sixteen. But um, we're we're at a little bit of a different phase now. But yeah, I, we can start with DeRozan. I mean, get the you know eat your vegetables first. And can I can I uh, just a, just a, a, a thought exercise popped into my mind with with respect to Lonzo? Sure. That I I think like contract agnostic. I think I'd rather have John Collins, but I'm not like a thousand percent certain of it. And so that like you know that that right there I think is is a, a good illustration. Like, would I be happy about paying Lonzo twenty five a year? No, I, I think it's like John Collins' deal that he got was perfectly fine. I thought I thought I think we were all in agreement that it was a very sensible deal um, for all parties. Uh, but if I'm not totally certain ab- about that, if I think that they're reasonably in the same ballpark as players. Sure. Yeah, I can. I can. For for many teams, I could. I could uh, agree with Dan that that you know him overpaid by call it two or three million is better than nothing. Well, also along those lines, most free agents that change teams are overpaid. Like that's 
that's how it happens. You know, it's that you don't usually get value in those circumstances. I mean, every once in a while, there's like a, with the exception of guys for the minimum and get certain players for the mid-level, especially if they're going to a good team. Like that's generally the way free agency works. Uh, sure. Can, before we get to the, the, the DeRozan thing, I, you know, again, you, you, one of, uh, I don't remember which of you said it and it was like three minutes ago. So apologies, but, but the word is sequencing. And, you know, I think that this, this off season, has sort of illustrated in fairly stark terms that uh, that identifying the sequence in in which deals were actually like done with when they were reported is probably wrong is probably incorrect so so you know it's easy to view it as oh good move good move good move oh hell no good move um, when we don't really know like it, it's hard for us well, to say I'll, I'll give I'll give a good example that I think you're alluding to yeah I like it seems reasonably clear that the Knicks had an idea yep. that they could get Kemba Walker with that amount of cap space and that's why they kept that amount of cap space open. Like, even though we heard about it last, it certainly feels like they had some sort of inkling that that was possible. So that, I mean, in some ways that the fact that we have to at least consider that the DeRozan thing was, and, and, and frankly, that's a, a far better explanation for the contract he got than, <laughs> than things happening in sequence is, is just a, 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 you know, a shot in the dark. Hey, how does uh, 28 million sound? Yes, yes, right now. Yes. Instant yes from the agent. You know, you screwed up when that happens. Um, where, where as opposed to, oh, wait, he's got no market left and let's, let's squeeze. Um, so, but that, I feel like that, that colors my evaluation of all of the moves I liked because like the theory that went behind, you know, when it was just, adding Caruso and 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 Ball like okay this is a backcourt that makes sense and you're kind of covering up defensively for some of your your front court and 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 Levine's defensive issues and and you know this 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 team kind of makes sense going forward and then that being in service of also adding DeRozan I just don't understand what the theory of the team is supposed to be just to piggyback off your point real quick I agree with you on the sequencing we don't always know um on this one I mean there's some supporting details right we have a tam- investigation about Lonzo Ball and then on the flip side there are reports of DeRozan like being ready to to meet with other teams and uh, including teams what, that had no money and didn't have the ability to sign and trade right, to acquire him by like sign Clippers. and trade. Uh, but but uh, one th- other thing that I think happens that's somewhat similar to what you're saying is I think sometimes if an agent talks to uh, a team while the, there's still a market for that player and the team says look at we think he's worth this much uh, it might be hard for the team to later tell the agent oh well the market disappeared Period. Like, yeah, we thought we were willing to pay him that much, but now we got you over a barrel, uh, depending on who that agent is, right? You might not want to uh, go that far and say that, say, well, yeah, the circumstances change. You might uh, kind of be stuck because you don't want this agent on your bed. So you might be stuck just saying like, yeah. well, that was a valuation. Uh, yes, the market <laughs> dried up, but we're going to – we'll still do that because we felt it was worthwhile before. Our circumstance hasn't changed, even if the larger landscape has. I, I agree that that happens. Uh, I don't agree that that's that that's I mean, if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about, you know, okay, uh, uh, an option year on the end of a small contract or, you know, a million or two here or there, like, sure. But, you know, it, run it, run this offseason 10 times. What is the median average value that, that DeMar DeRozan gets? It's 10 million less. 
per year. Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking eighteen total, eighteen per year. So yeah, that, yeah. that'd be roughly in that range. And what's, um, well, the other big variable we don't know is we don't know how much the Spurs were willing to pay him, right? We can talk yeah, about every other team, uh, but the Spurs saw his bird rights, and we just—that's one where we're I, at least I am fairly clueless on what. Uh, they were also, by the way, the Spurs—they're not in this division, but the Spurs made out of this like damn bandits. Like they—they got—they—they they got Thaddeus Young, who might be if they want him a better player for them or for where they're going than DeRozan on a reasonable contract. They got a first-round pick out of it, and like yeah, they took on Minu. Nobody really cares. Um, but so for me, the DeRozan part of it, it's it's a challenging it's a challenging duality that I want to try to convey. One, DeMar DeRozan is almost perfectly concocted to be the type of player that people like us rail against, where especially early like or when his Toronto years, where it's like he's taking the shots that we don't necessarily like, and he's not making them well enough. He's bad on defense and doing all that. Now, DeRozan was able to convert some of that and some growth as a playmaker and everything else into being a truly useful player, an invaluable part of the Spurs offense. But what strikes me about this trade and like why I think the Bulls front office did a did a poor job here is that you're not bringing in DeRozan to be what he was for the Spurs because you already have Zach Levine. And so, like, yeah, you could make an argument. I wouldn't agree with it, but you can make an argument that a facsimile for DeRozan in his age 32, 33, 34 seasons of what he did with the Spurs, maybe that's worth 20 million, 22 million in the modern, and like, as the NBA salary cap goes. But the Spur, but he's going to be less valuable to the Bulls because they don't need the creation that he provided. And that's where the, to me, the disconnect comes in. If you, if you had, I can, I can, you know, DeRozan's never been my favorite player for the reasons you just mentioned, but I could, I could get there to understanding at least how you think it could be if you are, you know, you're signing, not that this was going to happen, but if you're signing DeRozan for 12 million a year to be kind of the secondary creator alongside supporting Levine. I don't think that's an awesome fit. But I at least see where, where you're getting at. For the reason you said, like, do, do we want, like, okay, we want to take a little bit off Zach Levine's plate. We don't want to push Zach Levine off the ball and make someone else the primary playmaker because that's, you know, we, we have a guy who is, who, you know, is an all-star and, and we think can still get better. And, but what, so why are we, why are we stunting him by, you know, burning him with a guy who does kind of similar things, but worse? So I guess I'm going to, in addition to being the biggest Lonzo Ball fan, I'm taking that crown, uh, Seth, because you hedged more than I did. Uh, I, I guess I'll, but I'll also take the burden of being the biggest uh, DeMar DeRozan supporter. Yeah, this you, you're, get, you're getting that by default. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think I think it might work. And might work is not, it might work offensively. And might work offensively is not good enough to justify the cost, the, the contract, the first round pick, uh, Thaddeus Young, all of it. Not nearly good enough. But... I think, I, by the way, I think I think that, that that's a much more succinct way of making the point I laboriously tried to make immediately previous. So, yes, I agree with that completely. But I think it might work. And this is how it, I think there's a way where, OK, in the half court, you got your two creators, Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan. And then in transition, uh, Lonzo Ball is your creator and Zach Levine's your creator. And I think DeMar DeRozan theoretically can run the floor, uh, but he is getting older. Uh, he has been in, a, in some slower pace teams where he hasn't been doing that but you know he once was you know one of the nba's very best athletes uh 
maybe he can do some of those things. I don't know. I can squint and see it maybe working. I still don't like it. Uh, I think it was uh, the worst move of the offseason. Well, well, here, here's, here's the other crazy uh, – you brought up the the Bulls kind of like their transition DNA, which I think is an, is an interesting idea. But – and I, I agree with you kind of with that concept when you, when you look at their backcourt. But then you look at their frontcourt and you're just like, okay, Vooch doesn't really like scoot at this, especially at this point in his career. We'll see what Patrick Williams kind of does in that circumstance. And then they, I mean, I think he was the best guy available, but they signed Tony Bradley as their backup center. So there isn't a like push the ball, Willie Colley Stein style option here. Like they don't have that many non non perimeter guys who actually bust their ass down the floor. Seven seconds well, or Vooch. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. Um, but how are you? I mean, also, I mean, if you're never getting stops, how are you getting out in transition? <laughs> Hey, That's teams a fair are point. better than ever at running off of made baskets. I say with no evidence behind it, but it seems that way. Uh, I mean, I, I think you, you're probably right. Um, so that means that instead of like running off of like two percent of made baskets, they run off of four percent of made baskets. <laughs> so you know, and and you know, for the Bulls especially, like they'll get plenty of chances. So hey, they uh, they they might have they might have more transition plays off of opponent makes than any team in the league on a volume basis. But you know, that's because there are going to be a lot of opponent makes to try. <laughs> yeah, and that, and and that's the other big part of it for me with as when you add in. When you add in DeRozan to this, is how are they going to be able to stop teams well enough to be more than like a fringy playoff team? And if they if they want to be a fringy playoff team, I mean teams are allowed to be whatever they want. Not that we have are required to like it, but the for me and I would love to be wrong, but I don't think I will be. That it's the lack of upside. It's like okay, they could be a legit offense. Like I think they could be a very good offense, but. To be even 15th in defense to me would be kind of a miracle when you consider their personnel. Maybe with shooting luck and some other things they can get there. It's just like, okay, if you're 10th in offense, 20th in defense, like, okay, that's not a horrendous team, but it's also not like an inspiring one. You know what? They're, they're honestly their, their, their best reasonable case, their best uh, like reasonable scenario upsides is. Is they'd be like the Bizarro Knicks from last year. Is they just, they, they shoot the crap out of the ball during the regular season. They have, you know, top two or three offense and, you know, just kind of hold stuff together decently enough on defense. And so things break right. They win some close games and they finish fourth in the conference and then just get mollywopped by a team that is much better equipped to, to play playoff basketball than they are in the first round. Like that's, I mean, if we're talking like 75th, 90th percentile outcomes, that kind of feels like, would you disagree? I like that comparison. I just want to add a couple of words to make this sound a little nicer. Maybe you mean these, maybe you don't, but I'd add them. Uh, play hard every night. This team has the type of players that can do that. Uh, well coached, like that Knicks team. So like the, the Knicks, it wasn't just, you know, luck, everything come together. Uh, they did things to make the most out of their roster that the Bulls are capable of. There's a re- reason we're, we're talking about that as a higher uh, percentage outcome, though. It's because uh, most teams with that capability, they don't always do those things. But I can see the Bulls doing that. I like that comparison. Let's talk a little bit. Of, actually, I was going to say let's move on for the Bulls, but they also made these big moves in the backcourt. I, we, I think we're all kind of on board conceptually with the Lonzo Levine framework. And Caruso, I think, is a nice fit with both those guys because the the biggest limitation for Caruso is that he can't really create reliable offense for himself and others. And when you have enough other creators, Caruso doesn't have to do that. Now, my criticism of it is how are you really going to make all of this work in a, let's say, a closing five circumstance? Like, is the intention that Caruso's going to be guarding 
let's say you're not doing a switch everything. Is the idea that Caruso is going to be guarding point guards and then somehow you're playing everybody else? Like, how, Or is it just like he's just a nice guy to have in your rotation and you're not thinking that he's going to close games? I mean, I think that's – I mean, you're, if you're – your titular three and four are in your closing lineup are Levine and DeRozan. I mean, everything else and, and, and Vucevic is your, is your, is your, you know, your backstop. Um, you're, you're sort of deck chairs everywhere else anyway. Fair, fair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're asking how this team comes together in a logical way. And, uh, I, I just don't know if we're going to have great answers for you there, Danny. <laughs> and there's also just the minutes, right? They got Kobe White still. Uh, it's a lot of cards to. There, there are a few of the. There are a few of these. We're about to hit another one in Cleveland. Of player is still on team, even though we thought like <laughs> we thought they were not going to still be on team. Um, and in fact, let's go. Let's go to the Cavs. And and so Cleveland, another team where the sequencing was fascinating because the first thing they did like around the draft was they functionally gave up some resources to. Or I can't remember which team gave up the resource, but to swap. Uh, Torian Prince for Ricky Rubio. Rubio. I like that as a piece of business for the Cavs. Rubio is a stabilizing force. He's. Oh, I, 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 I hate to drop, but I thought you were going to say the first thing they did around the draft was agree to resign Jared Allen for $100 million. Well, technically speaking, that was reported afterwards, but yeah, it does seem like uh, that happened around that same time. Um, and then, so Rubio, totally reasonable piece of the front court and, um, or back court. And Mobley, I had him, you know, I, I think I, I think I technically ended up with him third and Suggs fourth, I had them in the same tier, totally reasonable pick. We'll, we'll see how that works out. That's going to take a little bit more time. Then, they, um, over this past weekend, well, so they, they signed the Jared Allen contract. And I'm sure we'll get into that. They, they've got additional resources, but functionally, like they swapped, I mean, you could say in the rotation, they swapped Larry Nance Jr. for Lowry Markinen while paying Markinen 67 million over four years. So my question, I guess we'll start with Dan is, what do they want to be? Not an embarrassment. They are tired of being an embarrassment when LeBron James isn't there, and they are embarrassing themselves trying to do it. I think I think this is when teams fail the most. It's when you're chasing such a modest goal that it shows that your organizational direction is completely off base. And, and so you're starting uh, – I don't mind uh, chasing the playoffs or – in some circumstances, right? I, I am not championship or bust by any means. I think there's a lot of value in making the postseason. Uh, but when your bar is so low and, and you're so likely to miss the playoffs still, right? If you're chasing the bottom end of the postseason, you better make the bottom end of the postseason because that's not a high bar. Uh, when you're just trying to get to respectability, you're probably going to fail. you got to be aiming higher and getting respectability on the way. There's still plenty of nice young players on this team. This team is not doomed forever. Uh, but some of these moves that are a little bit too much prioritizing the present uh, that they make over and over, it's really going to limit them as these young players blossom. I'll phrase it, I'll phrase it a little bit differently. Um, it's a similar criticism, but, but well, it's a little bit different, which is for years now, I think – Dan Gilbert and to a larger extent Kobe Altman like Gilbert's willingness to spend fuels this to an extent and Kobe Altman has been tolerated to do it that there is this idea that when you are not a desirable free agent destination that your money matters less and that is factually true I think that we could see that with the Lakers minimum contracts you can see that with who can get who can get Mac guys unless they were born in Akron and it's like that's a is very it, is it market or is it team? It's all of it. But so yeah. but but so I think that so there is that argument. But what Cleveland has gone to, and this is true of the Altman era long before this, is that okay, well, our money matters less, so we can 
So it like we could just throw money at these things, and and, and now with Larry Nance Jr. to his credit, and I guess to Altman's credit, like that contract looks a lot better. Like I I didn't think he was going to be that player. He really improved, and then that became a value contract. But when you look at it, kind of all of it in sequence, it's like, oh, okay, we're gi- we're giving Jetty Osman seven million a year, eight million a year, when he hasn't even proven himself to be like a rotation player yet. We're giving Kevin Love this insane extension way too early. Now we're giving Lowry Markkinen seventeen million a year for four years, and Jared Allen twenty million a year for five years. And so, even though the Cavs aren't good now, let's not lump those together. Just, no, no, I'm just, we'll, I'm just, we'll I'm, I'm painting the full picture. But yeah. so, even though the Cavs aren't good now, and they're going, it's going to take massive improvement, which almost all has to be internal, other than if they're bad enough to get other good draft picks. There, they're still not financially flexible. They have Kevin, Kevin loves like 29 million coming off the books in 22, 23, so in 23, and depending on how much Darius Garland gets, they still might not have functional cap space. Oof. <laughs> like that's insane. Like you think about you think about where this team is, and it's like okay. Well, I, I I had this conversation with Kel, I did a I did a piece with Kelsey Russo um, at the Athletic like during the like early part like I guess leading into the offseason because the Cavs offseason started so early and I'm like this is my big fear with the Cavs is that they're not going to have this window where they're both like young, interesting, and have cap space, and then they do all this and it's like oh, there's definitely not a window now. So this is, you know, um, continuity is one of those weird things because, okay, yes, good teams tend to, the teams that end the year, you know, in the later round of the playoffs tend to have had pretty decent continuity. That's something you can, you can, you can look back and you can see. And that's, that's, that, that bears out reasonably well. Um, I think that people get very confused at the causality there in that the teams yep. that is, that they, they have continuity because is, is this, good. is this the, the high fives, the high five thing? Yeah. No, it, it's, yeah, it's very, it, it's very, it's very much the same thing. If it, if you're, if, if people aren't familiar with this, there's been studies that come out all the time that, you know, the highest performing teams, like they, they exhibit a lot of like good team, teamwork reinforcing behavior. They high five a lot is, is, is the classic example of it. And so, well, we're, you know, if that's what it takes to be good, we're going to high the high five all the goddamn time. And, you know, if you tell the players that you're, you're going to high, you're counting high fives, they're going to high five, but the high five has lost its meaning as like a, a, a teammate kind of, uh, tank filling behavior. So yeah, we can, we can, we can game the high fives, but it doesn't, it doesn't get us anything. We can, we can impose continuity, but if you're imposing continuity by, you know, making sure oh, we can't lose Chetty Osman because our continuity, what are you doing? Well, well, the other thing with the high fives is the teams uh, that high five more win more. It's because they have more things to high five about. That's right, yeah, exactly. Right, and, and, and so it's just, that's the same with continuity too, right? It, yeah. It's if our team is good enough to keep together, that you know, then that's why we're keeping it together. You can't just say, "Well, we're going to keep these bums together and expect that to work out." I'm not yeah. saying the Cavs are bums, the hypothetical bums. No, but it, but it is like you, you. So, oh man, we you know we might we uh, have to go in and and and, and figure out. Chetty Osman and restricted free agency. So what? Like that's 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 the you know the, yeah we'd like to keep him around, but is is he has he shown enough to be like more than a than a taxpayer mid level mid level player? Uh, like speaking of has he shown enough to be more than a taxpayer mid level exception player? Larry Markkinen. Yeah. I mean, and so the other at wild least, at least the theory of at least there's a theory of him, but yeah, no, that's that, that was not a that was not a good move. Like, I mean, Lowry Markkinen rolling the dice on him. That, that there's that there's a weird parallel between Markkinen and DeRozan, where 
for both of them, I'm largely okay with the concept of player on team, where it's like, okay, Markkanen, he gives their front court a different element, especially if they're moving away from Kevin Love, whether he's on the team or not. And so a floor spacer who can't really play the five, but can, can do things as a part of like a three or four man rotation in the front court. That's fine. But the, again, they're like, I mean, Markkanen, he is not a definite, like he has shown starter flashes to be sure, but he is not like a definite, oh yeah, he's an NBA starter, like set it and forget it or anything like that. And the other thing that's wild about it is you give two players a combined 37 million a year and you draft somebody who, who in your mind is replacing one of them basically as soon as possible. And yes, I'm generally in favor of something like the Cavs did with Sexton and Garland of like throw, you can throw multiple resources. And then if, if you have too many things that work, you can always move away from something. But I don't know how they, how they thread this needle because I don't know that the players are good enough to do it. Well, also just the risk reward calculus. Is just oh, sure. that's a great point draft. too. It's so different for a draft pick than it is for a second contract to a guy that has already not, has already, it's not just that we don't know if he's good or not. He's shown himself in, you know, imperfect surroundings, certainly, but has shown himself to be a not good NBA player to this point. Like that's a, it's just a, the, the, how you win that, that, you know, that, that, that part of the deal is you're aiming at such a smaller target than if, than, than having either of, of Sexton or Garland or both hit to some degree. So that's that. And then you back that up with the fact that you, you've invested, you know, your, your two biggest, you know, investments in either like, you know, financially or kind of, uh, developmental time and, and framework have been at guys, as you say, who overlap. So it's, it's, you know, a move that in a vacuum I wouldn't have liked and in context, uh, is up there with, with the, as the, the worst move of, of the offseason, I think. Right, that's the key consideration to me. Is it wasn't even a good move in a vacuum. Like, yeah. uh, I, you know, I don't want to give up Larry Nance to get Lowry Markkinen. Uh, you can say on a young team, Markkinen makes a little more sense, but I, I just think Nance's value was too high for that. Well, also, like, why, why are the Cavs giving up an asset? You know, like, why, why, why do they see this is the thing they could do? Like, if Lowry Markkinen, if they had given him the full middle level, maybe the Bulls match. But like, okay, but you know. That, that's unfortunate, but you, you move on and it's like, oh, we have to get him and we have to pay this kind of a price. It, I mean, and it didn't even seem like the Bulls moved on. There's also another funny parallel between these two franchises, which is there are two teams that the Bulls and the Cavs that tried to get better now and did so in a way that I think is typically indicative of a, what I would consider a poorly run front office, which is that they did so without upgrading, without putting real small forwards on the team, where it's like, that's the <laughs> hardest thing to find. It's the hardest thing to generate on the, well, you know, to get a minimum player to do anything there. It's, you can't really build a facsimile. You can't real, it's hard to slide guys in and succeed. Like you can't, it's the, it's the spot that you can't really do a lot of that stuff with. And so Cleveland, has all of this money tied up there, you know, they're pretty close to the tax line now. And then they're not that far, you know, like they'll, they'll have some spending power next offseason, like maybe mid-level money, depending on what happens with Sexton. And they have zero players who their best position is small forward on this entire roster. There's so many ways you could have gone with 
they have zero players who. That's, that's <laughs> certainly one of them, and that's and that's an accurate one. But there's like there's so many ways you could. Yeah, and like and if you and if you feel the, the way that I do about Patrick Williams that I think he's the natural four, then you could make an argument that the Bulls don't either. Though Demar Derozan kind of exists outside that paradigm because if you defend no positions, then maybe you defend the three. Uh, well, no, Rosen's best position is point guard. Yeah. Well, uh, not defensively. Just... Defensively, he's a four because uh, he defends no one. If, he, if you have him on a point guard, your team is getting murdered. Uh, what What is the Isaac Okoro's best position? I think it's probably small forward. I think he's a two. I think oh. He's too small to be a three. Like I still like him as a player. He's interesting, but I don't think he's a three. Seth. I mean, it's you know he also has to. I mean, I guess we're we're projecting you know there's sort of a, an implicit like starting le- level or thereabouts i think in your whose best position is three because you know you could you could have someone on your team who's like okay yeah maybe maybe if you 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 trade for kenrich williams you have someone who's bad i and by the way player I, I very much like and would would think would be a good addition to any like like title contending team also but, how was he not involved in any of these trades <laughs> <laughs> like he might be a more surprising like how is he still on this team yeah. than than Colin Sexton is. I mean, I, I you would imagine that you know for a, a uh, anyway yeah, yeah. we don't we've, we've talked enough about others but but the, I, so I'm, I'm not super surprised Colin Sexton's on the Cavs by the way because it seemed very clear that they valued him the most all along and then we're like okay this player we love we're finally ready to put him on the market let's hear your best offers and they found out nobody loves him like they do. And so I think it was kind of predictable. Uh, no trade has happened. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it, and I'm not surprised that you're the one who thought of it. Um, it's like that, and it's the like it. It's something that I talk about a lot on Twitter of like fan bases overrating their own prospects, but it can really be true of front offices as well. And with that, that's going to make the extension negotiations extremely fascinating um, with him and. I would say perilous for the Cavs organizationally, um, though maybe it'll just wait until the off season, just because it's 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 they might be too far apart. And I I I think of Sexton as a very confident player. I could see him thinking like I'm going to have a breakout year. I was I did a I did a podcast uh, a, a Knicks podcast um, last week just you know for purpose of getting yelled at by Knicks fans more. Oh, but why would um, Knicks fans want to yell at you? Never mind. Yeah, I don't want to go down I, that road. Never yeah, mind. Never mind. Never yeah, mind. Yeah. No. So, but no. But like Colin Sexton came up and and and. One of the one of the folks on the pod, I I, um, I forget which one, brought up the point that, and I thought it was a really good point about Colin Sexton, in that you know there's there's probably a pretty useful player there, but it's not a player who's going to be functionally useful until the contract after this one because he's going to he's going to get overpaid like for for what he is on a, on you know a decent team, but then after that if he kind of settles into a you know, third guard scorer role. Um, like that's, he could, could he, you know, stylistically is not the same player, but could he be, you know, four or five years from now, could he be like somebody's Patty Mills signing? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that's, I think that's reasonable. And those bench scores, like, I mean, Clarkson and all, like they, they, if, if that's what Sexton's best role is eventually, yeah, could be fair. The only other I mean, thing. I'm, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, unlike some of those guys, he he is not a good defender, uh, but he has the capability to be a better defender. I I love his work ethic, his attitude, his tenacity. Like, you know, I'm not ready to put that type of ceiling on him. That's saying that's not what he'll yeah. become. I'm just not ready to do that. I, I think it's. I mean, with him, it's more just it's the combination of 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 size and offensive game. Yeah, just makes it. You have to be to be. You know a. Well, and not being a good a, passer. Yeah, a, a, a pure a scoring two in a one's body, you have to just be like a nuclear level scorer. 
to to make that to make that kind of work. And I think he I think he has you know the upside to be a a good score, but like you have to be you know pre injury Monte Ellis, uh, you know pre pre scooter Monte Ellis to to be like a difference maker as that in in that kind of in that kind of uh, mold. And I don't think he's that. Yeah. So just briefly on the Bucks, um, we haven't talked about them briefly. as much. <laughs> they're the they're, they're reigning the reigning champions. And in terms of the like moves that are interesting, so early on again sequencing. I was getting, you know, when, when PJ Tucker, one of the, you know, PJ Tucker going to the Heat was before some of their moves. It's like, oh, great. This is the Bucks cheapening out. They won the championship. PJ Tucker makes the better. He didn't take that much to go to the Heat. Instead, they ended up spending plenty. Like this is the, the, them being roughly 20 million over the tax line. Like that is, that is nothing to scorn. That is a lot of money for this franchise or for basically any other one that can't print it. And instead, it was not a question of will they spend. It was who they chose to spend on. And so instead of bringing back P.J. Tucker, you could argue this in a couple different ways, but George Hill's making $4 million a year. Bobby Portis is making 4.4. Grayson Allen, who they acquired in that Sam Merrill deal, is making 4. Um, so you could kind of piece it together there. And so I think the interesting question with them is, like, it's not did they spend enough. It's do you think they spent wisely? Okay, can we can I real quick do the did they spend enough question because I I do think that's relevant. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo has been so loyal to this franchise. He signed the supermax extension. I know Danny wouldn't. I, I don't remember exactly where you were at Seth. Uh, would have at least recommended he not because that money'd still be there the next year. You can wait and see and evaluate. And as he talked about after he won the finals, he's very open about this. He just felt so loyal to Milwaukee and wanted to win in Milwaukee and was more concerned about that than what was like the most financially advantageous move. I'm sure this added some peace of mind to not have to play through the season. I'm sure it helped his teammates to not be answering questions about Giannis's Supermax all the time. Uh, it probably contributed to winning the title. I don't know if they would have won anyway or not. They might have, but I think this at least helps. And one of the reasons he came back is because uh, ownership clearly sold him on, hey, we're in it doing whatever we can to win and it's just not true uh, are they doing enough are they doing a reasonable maybe that's a you know your opinion uh i think Giannis's opinion matters uh, the most and i guess he's okay with this but they're selling him on we're doing everything we can when they could have the same team with pj tucker and i feel even better about them they're really good they might be doing enough these might have been the right choices and we can get into where these are right or wrong choices uh but it, it it's bs when they claim they're doing everything when they could have done more so this is this is obviously uh, an area where I need to I I, I prefer to tread carefully. <laughs> like I well, I, wait, so so I'm so, so a, Seth, you answer. How about you just answer the the did they spend wisely? Not the other part. Can, well, can so I frame bad. that one real quick too? I, yeah. What uh, I, I look at it as they could have done uh, either had what they did, which is the uh, Bobby Portis, George Hill, uh, and Grayson Allen, or they could have had PJ Tucker and one of those three for similar money. And maybe that's not fair. Maybe not every player would have or team would have done that. Like they didn't know what's available. Um, and maybe like PJ Tucker would want more to go back or, or Bobby Portis would have wanted more if PJ Tucker were coming back or, or, or who knows exactly. I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair way to put it, at least for the thought experiment. Yeah, roughly. No, you I, could do I think if, the, if those are your, Tucker. if those are your choices, then, then like this is, uh, Danny and I have talked about this offline a little bit. We've, we've disagreed more strongly on, on some things this off season than, than we're used to. And this is one of them. Like I, I like if you offer me, wait, you can have like my choices are, I can have PJ Tucker and the dude, or I can have Bobby Portis and George Hill and Grayson Allen. It's like, uh, that's, that's, it's easy. Like I, 
you know, I think that the legend of PJ Tucker is uh, like so far outstrips the reality that the only reason to really be kind of um, miffed if if they if you think that they could have spent more is if they had re-signed PJ Tucker, it's with the intention of trading him for Thad Young. Like at the at the deadline or something like that. And I don't even think that that like how that would work like mechanically. I don't know, but that's like that kind of deal is is the reason why you would bring back PJ Tucker, not that you think you need PJ Tucker. Because I mean, he you know I you know I've heard Nate and Danny talk about you know how important he was, and I just like but I was like for any situation last year where it was just how about how about do the same thing but play Pat Connaughton instead would have been better um, in so many instances for for the Bucks. Yeah, I just don't agree with that. I I don't think it's an easy call at all. I don't I don't know if I'd rather do the three that they did or PJ Tucker and I don't know if I'd rather have George Hill or Bobby Portis if I'm bringing back uh, Tucker. I think that's a tough call. I think, it's I, think all, I mean I think it would have been, been George Hill just because like that backup guard spot was. Such a even even if Dante Divincenzo comes back, like you just right. can't go through another season with with that. Yeah, that and, and I, I would say you go with Hill also because it's the idea of replacement value. So like you can get a minimum center that isn't exactly what Bobby Portis is, but you can't really get a minimum point guard that is close to George Hill. So yeah, that's, that's why I would go that direction. Presuming George Hill has anything left. Presuming George Hill has anything left, and the Bucks better hope so because they gave him a second fully guaranteed year. But I, I think that – so I, I understand where you're coming from, Seth, and I think that P.J. Tucker especially because of some of the emotional things he brought, and he's his game has been so similar over the years that the degradation of his defense and his offense, it's, it's a little less noticeable. But I still think that having a player with more strength when – because like one of the things for me with the Bucks and why I was so critical of this is that – as much as I love Brook Lopez, at times and against certain opponents, you're going to need to go, I think, with the honest at the five. And I think that's the framework where you're really evaluating because you already have Brook Lopez, so and you're not and you're not going to move him or anything like that. So you have him. So you have Drew, you have Giannis, you have Chris Middleton in that, and you're probably going to have DiVincenzo when he's available. So if you have those four gentlemen, who makes the most sense next to It's like, for me, you want somebody who has the strength, so the primary position is defending fours, but who can handle other things and who has a lower usage, but efficient enough offensively that teams are going to guard him. And to me, he is a better person to fill that role than George Hill, than Grayson Allen. And I, okay, go ahead. But Connaughton, Connaughton is a fair one. I, I think of Connaughton, yeah. he's a better shooter and he does all that, but he, and, and, you know, like there were times that I thought Boonholz, like there was, I think that was against the Hawks where it's like why is PJ Tucker out there when Pat Connaughton should be out there like like for especially offense only situations but I think of him and there it's funny because Tucker and Connaughton are so they're very different defenders like when we get down to the nuts and bolts but I think I like what Tucker does and here's the other part of it is like I would rather have two options that I think are viable in that Giannis at the five lineup have two options there because like even if you're right with Pat Connaughton there's a possibility that it's not Pat Connaughton, and in this framework, it's very hard to see, like, well, crap, who is that guy? And as much as I like George Hill, as much as I at times like Grayson Allen, they're, they don't do something different, so I don't know where they fit in that lineup. I, but what is what does P.J. Tucker do aside from one the one game in a playoff series where he is invisible to the refs and stand in the corner and not get guarded on the other end? I mean, I think he he gets a he gets a little bit guarded, and I think that he he those no, there's he, certain, he just 
No, there, he's there's, not. There's, he gets he gets completely ignored. Like the the but, difference in his in his. But so so you don't you don't think he has value like in strength matchups against compared to somebody like Connaughton who's super jumpy and who doesn't really like. I mean, so so I mean, is he? I mean, is he? Better able to guard. I mean, really, we're talking about Kevin Durant right now, right? Well, it's, I mean, I actually think I actually think Durant's a tough matchup for PJ Tucker. It's just yeah. that Tucker was better at it than everybody else because yeah. he freaking lit up Chris Middleton. So, so, but, so, what are the like? What are the matchups we're talking about then? Like, who who is someone that that is that is of of worry to the Bucks? Where it's like, damn, I'm glad we have PJ Tucker. Would Jason Tatum I, qualify? Do you I mean do you care about Boston? I mean, you you might. I mean, there. I I think. I think. Well, I think. What about what about LeBron James? What about Kawhi Leonard? I mean, the goal is to win the championship, right? I mean, the team that comes out of the West is probably going to have a damn good forward of that ilk. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I mean, Kawhi, I think that, like, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I think Chris Middleton did, was, was basically fine on him. Wasn't, wasn't, like, over, like, obviously Kawhi got what he wanted, but I don't think that's a, LeBron is, is, is maybe a, a different thing there just because of, of, of his, of his, uh, Willingness to use his physicality, uh, sort of continuously. Um, but I, I think we're talking about PJ Tucker three years ago is, 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 is what it comes down to for me. I don't think we're talking about, I don't think we're talking about the existing 2022 playoff version of PJ Tucker. I mean, he's definitely fallen off significantly from where he was. I think there's no question about that. Uh, but I also agree with Danny uh, that his physicality is not something – and basketball intelligence even – it's not something that Pat Connaughton matches and can handle every defensive matchup that P.J. Tucker can. And, yeah, the offense, it, it hurts. He, I, I lean more toward you, Seth, in that you know, he, he's not being guarded. He is a liability on that, on that end. But I also think uh, the Bucks are fairly well positioned to handle that – in order to get the defensive upside, especially the you know the switchability, um, I, I think Giannis can can uh, has the strength to and the speed to get out in the open courts, uh, but to tear through uh, defenses where the spacing might not be there with PJ Tucker. I think Chris Middleton, right? He's not trying to get all the way to basket; he's trying to get a clean shot off in mid range. Yes, having more space uh, would help both of those guys, but I think they suffer less than most players do uh, from the spacing loss you get with PJ Tucker, where at least you have this defensive switchable option. I think that the I think that the offense ends up in okay, uh, Giannis, Chris, do something spectacular much more can. often than it needs. And they can, but it still is ending up there much more often than it needs to. I mean, they, the fact just the fact that they made that Brooklyn series such a slog with the with the personnel advantage they should have had, I think, speaks to that as much as anything. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, that it, it muddies the offense, but I, I really think you're underestimating the defensive advantage. Well, we're, I mean, we're going to find out, and I'm going to be, I'm going to yeah. be very interested in it. Um, we've I, I mean, spent- I, you know, this is also, this is, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm, uh, to be fair, I'm, I've been consistent about this and that I hated the signing for Miami. So it's not, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, no, it's just, well, it's, it's a difference of evaluation and that's, that's yeah, fine. That's fine. Um, hey, uh, hey, Seth, I have, a, I have a question for you about PJ Tucker in Miami. Yeah. Do you, do you think he makes the heat worse in the sense that, right? He's got some name recognition. He's got his contract. He's going to have to get minutes. Would they be better off if they had never, just never made that signing and just had, you know, some useless minimum player on the roster instead? I, I think they would. The issue is as much the opportunity cost in that they they needed some 
wing innings eaters because they're they, rather than you know tripling down on snarl um, because they're they're most important their their key factor is is going to be Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler getting to the playoffs healthy and you know a, 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 a wish a hope that they're healthy is not a plan to get them there healthy but and, and having you know your your first wing off the bench be Max Struess is is not um is is not necessarily amenable to uh, not running Jimmy Butler into the ground during a regular season. So while all the rest of us are, are baking into the cost for the Bucks, that, oh, not only do you not keep P.J. Tucker, you're letting a, a challenger in the East get him, uh, you think at least maybe that part of it went right, too? Yeah. No, but I, I, I do think that the that the, that the usefulness as well, a... There, there's another part of that that I think the Heat got a lot easier for the Bucks, the Bucks specifically to defend. Which I think is interesting. Like their Milwaukee's limitations defensively are a lot less relevant against uh, the this heat lineup than it would be if they had sp- more reliable spacing at the four. I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I think if there's honestly, if I'm going to be like super critical of the Bucks, like the one spot is that is is um, you know, the, the some of the stuff you're talking about is is Rodney Hood doesn't solve it doesn't really address any of the stuff you're talking about, and that was that you know you're go, you're you've got minimums to work with, so it's time but that was their that was their bite at that apple and i think that that's i think that's a that's a you know the ideal guy would have been a guy would have been a tory craig type and and oops um <laughs> well i mean they wouldn't have played a tory craig type yeah. um a couple other we, interesting we, talk, we talked enough about the bucks that uh seth stopped being quite so careful um well, so and I'm also fascinated by the Grayson Allen thing. I think that's really uh, it's a hedge on Divincenzo, not only his health at the start of the year, but also his contract demands either an extension talks now or um, after. Now, I think of Allen as a significantly worse player, but I also think of him as somebody who could come at a more reasonable price tag. And that will be another referendum on Dan's point of ownership's willingness to spend, is that if DiVincenzo ends up in a different uniform at a reasonable-ish cost and Grayson Allen is a buck at a cheaper cost, then that will be another potential consequence. I think that that's maybe looking ahead a little too much. I think that that for... Just this season, I mean, the, the, again, the opportunity cost of adding a, a good shooter and feisty defender? Is that, that's what we'll go with? <laughs> um, a, is, a, a, tri- a trippy defender? Uh, well, oh you know. <laughs> a trippy in like a, like a 2001 sense or, or trippy in terms of like the like, okay, we know the, I think, yeah. I think, I, I, I'm thinking more of Cobra Kai yeah. than, yeah, yeah, um, but no, I think that that you know a, a a guard with decent size who can who can shoot an open shot and handle the ball a little bit. Um, it's, it's never a bad ad for you know basically nothing. And yeah, if it, and and you're right to wonder about how the optionality going into next season might play out. But I feel like that's kind of weird to say. Oh, they've given themselves some choices, and I'm sure they're going <laughs> to screw it up. Um, you know, I in, in general for the defending champions. Yeah, I mean, you know, I yeah. So I think that that's that's a that's a tough that's a tough one to sort of build into your uh, your evaluation of that move because I think I think for for the purposes of defending the title like I think it's a it's not a mountain being moved but it's a it's it's certainly a a, a good like you know a good small ball addition. 
Okay, so we're I, I know we're we're running we're running short on time. I think we'll kind of breeze through some of the other cat things that I usually do. Uh, best newcomer to his team. I don't even know that we need to go through that. Um, let's say the rookie other than Cade Cunningham that you're most excited to see in this division because I'm sure it's Cade for all of us. We're just talking about that. Yeah, for me, my number two is Evan Mobley. I'm a big believer in drafting centers lower, but I think he might be the the special type of center uh, who can hold up completely in the playoffs. Uh, you know, w- with his shooting, but more so with his defensive versatility. Uh, the the type that's not going to get schemed off the floor in any way that can play to any type of lineup and just be such a, a positive asset defensively. We'll see. He's got to put in strength. He's got to become a better rebounder. Uh, these are things centers of his style can develop over time. Uh, but I'm super intrigued by him. Could as it shook out, could he have been drafted into a worse context? I mean, you think about it like the the, the guard play is. I like you know, I like Garland a little bit more I think than you do, but it's not yeah. great. I don't know. I and I, it's funny because actually I don't I don't dislike either player, but it's 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 well, not. it's all it's also hard because like yeah. Mobley either the idea is that I think he kind of has to actualize in one direction or the other to make sense with either Markkanen or Allen. Yeah, where it's like okay, if he's that there's a version of, of Mobley that works as a five that he can kind of that he can handle the ball a little bit, that he can defend that position, and then then Markkanen might be a reasonable partner there. Um, and but or or if it's if, but not if you wanted to do a switching style thing. And then with Allen, that's probably Mobley feeling more confident in his jump shot, becoming a little bit more versatile of a defender. But the problem is, you're, as you mentioned, you're not trying to get them to find the like feeding him the ball in the right places. And with all of the overlaps, it just it's going to be hard. Yeah, that's. I mean, he. So that I I don't think he's going to look good this year. And I don't think we should read. And and I don't think we should read too much into it. No, I don't. Th- I definitely don't think we should read too much into it. He's he's very young, and I think his like Mobley, his body's going to change a lot. Uh, the the other the guy because of the idea of the short versus the long term that I'm really interested in watching this year is Chris Duarte and. The Pacers are going to need something from him. I think they kind of opened up a spot in the rotation for Duarte when they let McDermott go. Not that I supported them giving McDermott that contract. Again, like I mean, they could have paid the tax. They could have retained him. And they could have even retained him and done other things like move Jeremy Lamb and tried to avoid the tax. But Duarte, I wasn't blown away by him in some league, but I did find him interesting. And I like the... It's we, You talked about putting a player in his chance to succeed. I think Duarte is going to have a better path to success as we would define it for Duarte than Mobley will as we define success for Mobley. That's fair. Okay, uh, let's start with Dan on this. Um, I, I usually say do it in terms of regular season success, but if you want to use a different framework, you can uh, rank these teams one to five. And so the Bucks are obviously in a tier of their own at number one. I could go either way on Pacers, Bulls, two, three. I guess I'd have Indiana uh, slightly ahead for all the, the flaws we see in Chicago's construction. Uh, and then at the bottom, I think the Cavs and Pistons are in their own tier. Uh, and that's, I guess, I, well, I could really, really go back and forth on that one. I guess I'd lead the Cavs ahead uh, because their young guards are not quite as young. Teams with young guards, especially a point guard, tend to struggle. So if the Pistons give the ball to Kate Cunningham a lot, uh, love is upside, but the odds that he is uh, ready to lead a winning team in his rookie year uh, as talented as he is are low. Or if Killian Hayes is going to be more of the point guard, uh, he might be even more raw. Uh, so that's a recipe for trouble. But uh, some of the, the clutch problems, the point difference uh, clues you can get from the teams last year, uh, maybe the Pistons were ahead of the Cavs last year despite having a slightly worse record. So uh, I could go coin flip on those last two. Yeah, I think I – yeah. I mean, obviously Bulls uh, – Bucks – 
uh, top. Um, I think in that order, be, right? Seth? Yeah, no, I think I would, <laughs> I, I would have I would have uh, I would have the Pistons fourth and the Caps fifth. But, um, I, but I, ha- I have the Pacers over the Bulls. I, I think no, that, I, I, I do as well. Okay, um, so I, I think so. It's 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 Mil- Milwaukee gap, big gap, I guess. Mil- a big gap, Indiana, Chicago, decent sized gap, Detroit, uh, 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 Cleveland. And like one way of putting this is Indiana last uh, in 1920, like basically they were hovering around like a plus two, plus three point differential for a couple of years there. And I w- it would it would I mean that would be a very good year for the Bulls if they got there. And I mean the Pacers, I would say they have a better roster overall than they did the year that ended in the in the bubble. Um, and I think that they have a better they have a better coach. And I mean that they won't necessarily have the same like shooting luck or anything else, but like. I, you know, would, if the Bulls had a, so last year, like roughly a plus two net rating, that was teams like the, the Knicks and the Hawks. So about 10 games over 500, but we were playing a shorter season, all that type of stuff. Like Chicago, like that, I think that would be pretty much a successful season for them. So I, w- I think the Pacers, I think the Pacers are better, but I, I do think they're the same tier, um, for some of the reasons that were discussed. And, for for Cavs Pistons, I think the Pistons are actually better on paper, but the they are more clear about where they are and where they're going, which means I I think they'll end up with a worse record. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll convey that nuance because I feel like I want to and whatever. Um, start with Seth on this one. How many teams from the Central make the playoffs? Uh, when we say make the like. Of the eight, we, let's put it that way. Okay. The playoffs, um, Dan. I can. I, I. I think you are the one who's more definitive on this. That playoffs are the eight, and postseason is the ten or not the ten. Yep. Uh, postseason includes the play, and playoffs does not. I mean, I would. I would have phrased this as how many do we think are going to be in the top six? Oh well, then it's just one, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no two. Like eight teams still make the playoffs. Six qualify yeah. directly from the regular season, and two qualify <laughs> to play it. No, I think that I mean I think, but I, but I think that that probably is a better representation of how we is, is okay. The Bucks are going to be in the top six. I think the most likely spot for this the 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 Cavs, the Pacers, and the the Bulls is going to be in the play-in, and then the, the other two are are in the in the lottery. Like that's I think that's um, that's I think how I'd say it. Now now which of those I, because. Predicting how much of how many of those or which of the play-in teams actually like come through that. I mean, that's a combination of you know a little bit of happenstance and who happened to get home court advantage, right? And who's healthy and yeah. all that. That's yeah. a very nuanced answer, Danny. I'll answer your question too. Uh, the Bucks obviously, and then one of the uh, Pacers <laughs> or Bulls. Yeah, I, th- well, I think because they're going to play each other for the last spot. Is my there? Point. You go exactly. Yeah. It was an easy question. You, yeah. you really uh, they could play each other in the seven ten play in. Oh no, never mind. It's seven eight. Then loser nine ten. That's right. Um, I, I know. I know how the play in works. It was. It, it's been during <laughs> my lifetime. Yeah, I think it's two as well. Um, also, the one of the big risks for the for the central of it just being one is that they don't have a lot of bites at the apple. Like I, I don't think Cleveland or Detroit, even with a successful season, when you consider how many teams in the East tried, I'm not going to say they have zero chance, but I think it's pretty low. So what that means is that if one of these teams gets really injured, yeah, maybe the other, the other of the Bulls and the Pacers gets a little bit of a bump from that because they play them a couple of times, but I don't think that, you know, the variance I think works against the central division because as, as Seth put it, there aren't that many high teams. And so it would not stun me at all if they have one, whether that's, they don't have one in the top, you know, because they lose in the play in or because they just like, you know, they don't make it or anything like that. 
Um, a brief point too on that front is that part of why I, I and we don't know if Markkinen's like good enough. You know, could run into like the. I mean, he's worse than Jeremy Grant, but the idea that like they that they spent too much money on him, but he wasn't good enough to change their fortunes. Where like Cleveland spending the way they did and potentially trying to play their way out of the bottom when there are so few teams in the bottom, like that that was actually an, an opportunity lost. But I think they're still going to be pretty bad. They they just they they were they were performed poorly enough at getting better that they. Yeah, and you know who did that last year? Possibly there's an argument about it, the Detroit Pistons. Pistons, yep. Um, and it worked out pretty well for them, I, I think, I think you'd say, and, um, uh, so, uh, the other, the last question I'd like to end these on is, uh, like, what players do you think will break out? And I define it as basically a player that will reach a new level of success. You can use notoriety if you want, but just a player that we'll be talking about differently at the end of the season than we are right now. In a better <laughs> way. You can't have a revert, like a bust out. We're not, we're not talking about those type of players. I don't have a great answer in this division, so I might just end up stealing yours after you go. Uh, but but a few I have on the radar. Uh, I think Darius Garland is a talented young player. Uh, point guards tend to develop uh, a little bit later, so maybe this is his year. Uh, I think Isaiah Stewart, uh, his energy, his hustle is very infectious. I think he'll win a lot of people over as he appears set to get a bigger role uh, with Mason Plumlee gone. Uh, and Sadiq Bey was pretty good last year on a bad team and uh, got some acclaim for it, but I could see him building on that as a young player progressing. Um, I feel like I've, I've answered it for various different teams and divisions. I feel like I've answered Karis LeVert like five years in a row, so um, <laughs> go, go with that again. Or I mean, or the, the other the other kind of cop out answer is I think uh, I think I think um, I think Cade is going to be a people are going to really gravitate to him. I, like I. I, I saw everything I needed to see from him in in, in summer league. Cade's um, Cade's capacity and effort on defense is really impressive, and I think that it will it will make him a higher floor rookie than a lot of them are. I wonder about the overall offensive ecosystem in Detroit, like whether whether you know like if they play him with Killian Hayes, if they play him a lot with Saban Lee or like Corey Joseph, maybe some of that stuff doesn't work as well. And in summer league, I thought Cade was a little bit too passive. Like he's better than the other guys, so. Like, you kind of want him to do it more. I don't know what the coaching staff wanted. You know, like there are a lot of different things there. He seems like a really good kid. Um, I think a year away might have made some people forget that TJ Warren's a very good basketball player. And I'm also really interested in his next contract, whether that happens via an extension or whether that happens via um, unrestricted free agency in 22. Um, I don't know that he's going to be markedly better than he was, especially in the bubble in 2020. But I think there's a really good player there. I continue to think there's a chance that Darius Garland puts it together. And I, if we're talking about the framing of that, we'll talk about differently. Even though I think he got overpaid, I think Jared Allen's best days are well ahead of him. And I think there is, I, I don't think of Jared Allen, part of why I think this is too much money is that I don't think of him as like a top seven center. I don't think he has that kind of juice. But is there a top 15, top 10? Potentially. And I think we could see those signs this year. I, that's a, I, we didn't really get into it, but I, I kind of, in a vacuum, like that contract for him much better. Like in, in context, I think it's, it is blah. But part of the reason I, in a vacuum, was fine with it is I think that he's a guy who is, who is, whose skill level, especially on offense, is, is higher than he's generally given credit for. Uh, unfortunately, he's going to be in an ecosystem in 
Cleveland where he has zero opportunity to really show that off. I think he is, I think he is a, a better passer kind of in, in like a, out of a short roll, out of a, a pick and roll situation than, than, you know, many players of kind of the, the, um, you know, all, all kind of along the same lines as, as part of the reason why I'm, I'm a big Robert Williams fan is a similar thing is, is just that little, that little bit extra with the ball that you don't always get from the, you know, the, the Capella mold centers. Just speaking offensively, this is why I love Evan Mobley. Because of his fit with Allen or just because of what he could do? No, because of what he can do. I, I think he's got, like, I, I think uh, his main profile is that same Capella mold, but I think he's got the extra stuff, too. Yeah, I'm going to be, like, I mean, I'm going to probably watch a lot of the Cavs this year just because they have a lot of guys that intrigue me and because, you know, the nature of my work is that I end up, I'll, I'll, I end up watching everyone a fair amount. And so, like, how, how these guys look because it's, it, for them, it's not necessarily about the record. It's like, it's the flashes. I've talked about this a lot over the years. It's like, especially with Mobley, it's like, okay, not what's your true shooting percentage? Was that? It's like, do you make the reads? Do you, do you, or do you surprise people? Like, what are we seeing offensively? And so with both Mobley and Allen, just partially because of the super weird career that Allen has had so far, changing role in Brooklyn, getting traded partway through the season, and then this weird Cavs year, like what trying to get a sense of where that team is going is going to be really interesting. I, I think going that's all, to I, uh, 12th to 14th place in the conference. Yes, sure. <laughs> but they're different. There are things for this. Um, I, I will thank you guys both so much for taking time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you as always, Danny. And, and, uh, and thank you, Dan, for uh, letting me get to the second to last word in. And I'll leave you with the last word. Well, uh, thanks for having us on, Danny. I enjoyed the discussion as always. Thanks again to Dan Feldman and Seth Partnow for taking the time to come on. You can read Dan Feldman's work at NBC Pro Basketball Talk. You can also follow him at Dan Feldman NBA. And you can read Seth at The Athletic. Hopefully we're going to have a piece, collaborative piece coming out. Of course, we've done a ton over the offseason so far. Um, you can read him at The Athletic. You can also check him out on Twitter at Seth Pardo, S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Love having him on, and I do really enjoy this series. And it will continue throughout the offseason. Uh, for those of you who, who noticed it, apologies. It was not an episode last week because I had a late cancellation, and when you're doing two guest podcasts, it's very hard to find a, a, a response time and a second guest that works. So I had to drop that, and then going to intend to do two this week. Uh, so that should be good, and mostly going in the division realm, I'll do some other stuff too, um, but really excited about the off-season for Real GM Radio, ap- appreciating having more time off and everything else like that. If you want to help the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. Subscribing and downloading every episode is probably the most important thing, whether you do that in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever, because there won't ever be a rhythm with it, unfortunately. You know, having a having a gap last week is a good example of that too, and it you can just get it in your inbox whenever they come in, and likely there's going to be a second episode this week. You can also tell other people about the show, that can be word of mouth or that can be leaving a rating and review again in the podcast player for choosing because that helps other people find the show. And even though Real GM Radio has been around a long time, it still is something that people are discovering, which I greatly appreciate, but we can get into that. You can also check out my work. Nate and I are still doing Dunked On. Um, vacations are slowing, are slowing the pace. We often do that in the off season, but there's still just a ton of material. I don't even know how much of our summer league review is out yet, but we've recorded the whole thing. We recorded in a massive block. And then I think he's releasing it over the course of of his travels and have other stuff in the works as well. Written work for me, of course, at The Athletic and probably going to get, well, we'll see if I get more into that. I might get a little restless. I might not, um, but you can check
check all that out, of course. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is my promise. I'll try to respond, but I'm not admittedly not the greatest at that part of it, but I will read it. I do that every day. But that is enough for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 